Well, we're in a series this August or this month um, about people who meet Jesus. And one of the things I think, there's many, of, many things that uh, mark us out as human beings, but I think in this world, in this sinful world, one of the things that marks us out as humans is that we all have some things in our life that we're ashamed about. We have shame in our lives. Now, some of those things we can laugh about, we can talk about, we can, we can laugh at ourselves at the things that we've done in our past that uh, have embarrassed us and we can have a laugh about it. But of course there are some things in our lives where we are ashamed, we're embarrassed and we don't want to talk about it, we don't like to talk about it because it's painful or just things in our lives that we've done, we've thought, we've said and we, we think, when we think about them we, we go red all over and we think I don't want anybody to know about that. And uh, we're going to be looking, and if you've got the notes in front of you today, at uh, a blind man, two women and ten lepers this morning. And uh, in, in these stories, or they're not stories, they're, they're thing people Jesus met, but in them, the one thing that these people have in common is there's shame, there's some form of shame in their lives. And uh, the first one is, it's found in John, John chapter 9. And it says in God's word in the Bible, Jesus was walking along and he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Teacher, the disciples asked, why was this man born blind? Was it the result of his own sin or those of his parents? Now, of course, that question that the disciples asked actually doesn't make sense to us today. I'm sure many of you will know that in that culture it made a lot of sense because their belief was, their thinking was, that anyone born with a physical disability, it was assumed that they had sin in their life or something their parents had done. So the disciples asking these questions makes a lot of sense. Who, who sinned? What, what happened here? Now, we don't know much about this, uh, this man who's blind. Uh, we don't know his name. But what we do know and can assume is that... Uh, for this man, he would have had to have been begging. There was no national health service and no, no benefit system. So this, this blind person, this man, he's an outcast. He's having to beg on the side of the road. He's filled with shame because people will be looking at him thinking, somewhere along the line, there's sin in his life or his parents have sinned. And he will feel rejected. He's an outcast. Jesus answers the question in verse 3 of chapter 9. It's not because of his sins or his parents' sin. He was born blind so the power of God could be seen in him. This man is going to be healed by Jesus. And Jesus says, so that you might know who God is and who I am, I'm going to heal him. What I'm going to do is not an illusion. He's going to be able to see. And my power, Jesus says, is going to be demonstrated through his problem. And in verse 6, Jesus says, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva and smoothed the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and he came back seeing. So this blind man, who's been blind from birth, can now see. There is a tremendous miracle. But the point about this miracle isn't just making this man see. The, the miracle, that many of the miracles that Jesus the power of God is seen in him. 
The power of God made the deaf hear. The power of God raised the dead back to life. The power of God healed the paralysed person. The power of God went beyond the physical to the natural. The, the power of God calmed the waves. The power of God meant Jesus could walk on the water. The power of God meant that Jesus could feed 5,000 people with, and I always get this wrong way around, five loaves and two fish, isn't it? I always get it the wrong way around. But anyway, with very little food, he fed 5,000 people. And so the one thing that is so simple here is that Jesus is powerful. But the power of God is not limited to 2,000 years ago. The power that healed the sick, raised the dead, walked on water, fed 5,000 people with so, few, uh, so little food, is available to us today. God's power is still accessible. And if you are here and you have been blinded by the shame of your past or your shame keeps coming back to you and all you can see is the shame and you're embarrassed by what you've done, what you've said, so all of that where shame has influenced your life, God says to you, I want to open your eyes so that that can disappear. And it's not about shame, it's about what God can do in your life and in my life. So shame doesn't have to control us. What we've done in the past, what we've said in the past, doesn't control us. And we don't have to feel any shame. And it doesn't matter, some people can be Christians for years and that shame controls their life. And God says he doesn't want that. He wants to open your eyes to see what God has done in your life and that the power of God can take that away and you can know that you are truly fear. The first encounter on our journey as we learn uh, this morning is that Jesus is powerful. The second encounter is in Mark 5. Now just before we, we look at this, you need to understand that uh, Jesus has just got out of a boat. He's met at the shoreline by a well-known, powerful figure, Jairus. And Jairus says, my daughter is sick, would you heal her? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll come with you. And Jesus is in, on his way to Jairus' house. But as he walks his house, there is this uh, other miracle. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus went with him and the crowd thronged behind there was a woman in the crowd who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors through the years and she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she hadn't got better. In fact, she was worse. Now again, just like the blind, we don't know much about this woman. But here's what we do know. She was an unlovely social outcast. She would not have been allowed to go to the temple. Nobody would have been allowed to touch her because they would become unclean as well. So this woman is an outcast. She's not ever having her hand held. No one's ever hugging her. No one's there to wipe the tears from her cheek. She's broke. She spent all she had to try and get better and she hadn't. The illness has broken not only her body but her bank account as well. And she's in the crowd and it says in verse 27 she had heard about Jesus so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched the fringe of his robe for she thought to herself if I can touch his clothing I will be healed. There's tremendous faith here and if you were here a couple of weeks ago we were talking about faith. 
She only needs a little bit of faith. But actually here she's got great faith. She's heard about Jesus. She thinks, if only I touch him. He doesn't have to say anything. If I touch him, (coughs) I can be made better. And a little bit of faith draws us close to Jesus. Jesus was always amazed by faith. And we see it again here in verse 29. Immediately, straight away, the bleeding stopped. And she could feel that she had been healed, it says in verse 29. She knew it immediately. It wasn't just a gradual process. It wasn't she had to go home and find out. She knew that she was better. And it says, Jesus realised at once a healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my cloak? The disciples go, Well, who do you think? Everybody's touched. This is a crowd. Virtually everybody's bumped against you, touched you. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? How can you ask, Who touched me? But verse 32, Jesus kept on looking around to see who had done it. And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realisation of what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You have been healed. The woman is terrified. She thinks, what's Jesus going to do to me? And the power of God healed her. He gave her exactly what she'd been dreamed of, what she hoped for. She got a restored body. But what I want to say to you is not simply here is the power of Jesus, but here we see that Jesus is personal. His response is very personal. He called her daughter, a very affectionate term. And here you just need to see that Jesus, God, is looking into her eyes. And he looks into this woman's eyes and he doesn't see anything that needs shame, that she needs to be ashamed of. But what he sees is beauty. He sees great potential. He sees someone who is lovely. And he sees someone who is a somebody. She thought she was a nobody, but God sees her as a somebody. And the thing is, Jesus didn't allow her to slip away anonymously. He didn't want that. He stops the, the march, the parade, he calls a time out and he wants to make sure that there is this face-to-face contact, that he can look into her eyes and say to her daughter, you have been made well. And that there's something more than her touching him because now it's him touching her. The one who healed her is the one who loves her. And he has restored her body and he's given her dignity. At this moment in time, the crowd is forgotten and Jesus speaks to her as if she's the only person that there is in the world. And that is personal. So Jesus is powerful, but he's personal. And it's really important for all of us, whether we know the Lord or not, that so often we don't see God as being personal. But Jesus was being personal, not just this woman, he's going to the house of Jairus. That's personal, he's making a house call. But in the middle of that he stops in the crowd and he locks on this woman and he looks at her. And we all need a personal Jesus. We need that personal connection and because Jesus has died for us, 
We can have that personal connection with him. And we need to understand that Jesus knows not only our name, he knows our shame. We can hide it from everybody in this room, we can hide it from everybody in the world, but we cannot hide it from Jesus. He knows what we're ashamed of. He knows every tear. He knows every regret. He knows every pain. And yet, he still locks in on us, looks into our eyes and says, you are forgiven. You are healed. You are made well. And so often we can think, even as Christians, even if we've been Christians a long time, now we can think there's six billion people on this planet, probably more than that now, Does he really know me? Am I not just one of the crowd? And he says, no, you're not just one of the crowd. You're personal to me. I know you by name. I know every hair on your head. I know every shame, every tear. And I still love you. You do not need to be ashamed. So we come to the third encounter in John 8. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered as he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman they had caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. So we have the Pharisees. They're bringing a woman, someone they know is sinful. The, 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 um, the people who kept the law, the people who didn't like Jesus, say, bring this woman. And obviously, and I'm sure all of us have thought this, we're thinking, hang on a second, doesn't it take two to tango? Where is the man in this story? Where's the man? If they bring the woman who's been caught in adultery, well, they must have caught the man. Why is it just the woman? Well, the reason is, actually, because this isn't about justice. It's irrelevant to them about the woman or the man. They just wanted to bring somebody who they caught in their sinful act and say, Jesus, what are you going to say about this? Because the Mosaic law said that Jesus, uh, that, that this woman should be stoned. So they want to ask Jesus. So they say, they say to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery and the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And John comments, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. So it's got nothing to do with adultery as such. They just want to trap Jesus. And they come up with this great plan, you see, because if Jesus says, no, don't stone her, well, that's going against the Mosaic law and the people are going to turn against Jesus. You can't go against the Mosaic law. You can't go against the teaching of Moses. And he'd forfeit popular opinion. On the other hand, if he says, yes, go ahead and stone her, he then violates Roman law, because they're not allowed to stone uh, people. Plus, and probably more importantly, his reputation for compassion and forgiveness would have been questioned. So as far as the Pharisees and teachers of the law are concerned, either way, yes or no, Jesus loses. And they've got him. And you can almost see them. They're high-five one another. Ah, this is great, we've got him. He can't get out of this one. Watch him go down. This is fantastic. Verse 6, Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. That's what he does. He stoops down and he starts writing. He doesn't answer their question. They keep demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, okay, yeah, go ahead. Stone her. 
But before you stone her, let those who have never sinned throw the first stone. Jesus has this brilliant response. It breaks the dilemma. It holds up the morality of the Jewish law. Because he doesn't say what she did was okay. But he says, yeah, okay, if you want to stone her, but before you do, only those who have never seen. And then he stoops down again and writes in the dust. We don't know what he writes. We don't know why he does that. In verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So they walk away. And as they walk away, what are they doing? They are admitting their own sin. And whether it's 2,000 years ago or today, people know when they've sinned. They know when they've blown it. They might try to cover it up. They might try to disown it. But... We all know when we break God's laws. We all know when we've messed up. And these Pharisees, he teaches the Lord, they're walking away. And you can kind of hear them mumbling, whose idea of a plan was that anyway? What a stupid plan. But Jesus then stands up and he says to her, woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And that word woman, again, it's an affectionate term. The same word Jesus refers to his mum in John 2, to Mary in John 2. It's a word of endearment. He says, well, where are your accusers? Jesus is now alone with this woman. Perhaps she's frightened. She must feel ashamed because she has been caught in the act of adultery. She knows she's, as it were, one stone away from death. And Jesus uses a term of endearment again. In that moment, we see Jesus caring for her. Didn't even one of them condemn you? She said, no, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. The one person who could throw a stone didn't even pick one up. He could pronounce her guilty or not guilty, and he pronounces her not guilty. He says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And perhaps you're thinking, well, where's the miracle in that? The greatest miracle of all, forgiveness. The greatest miracle any of us can receive. And actually the one miracle that we all need is forgiveness. In that moment, he not only let her out of an earthly death sentence, he let her out of an eternal death sentence. That means Jesus is forgiven. And there's power in forgiveness over the shame that is in our life. Whatever shame you have, there's forgiveness. And forgiveness is essential to the character of God. Jesus is forgiven. He didn't approve of her sin, but he approved of her. He didn't bring up her act, but he brought up her future. He says... Go and live better. Not a lecture, just make some changes. You've been forgiven. Now go and act like it. Don't let shame define you. Allow me to forgive you and give you a new life that is filled with my power that is personally written for you. See, Jesus is powerful 
to heal. Jesus is personal to get alongside us and look into our eyes and say, I love you. Jesus has the power to forgive. So that shame doesn't have to define our lives. Now we can respond to it in all sorts of ways. And the final miracle is that miracle uh, where Jesus heals the ten lepers and only one comes back. He comes back and he says, praise God, I'm healed. He fell face down on the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. One got it. One came back and says, and and worships Jesus, says thank you. And his life, not just his leprosy is gone, but his life is changed. Here's my challenge. My challenge is when we walk up out of here that we would be people who respond like the one leper. That there would be something so transforming by the truth of God's word that God is powerful, that he's personal, that he's forgiven that we would want to respond. That it would be compelling inside us. And when you hear that God is powerful, personal and forgiven what does that make you want to do? How do you respond to that? That's a so what question. So what if Jesus is powerful, personal and forgiving? And whether we've been, we're not a Christian yet, or whether we've been a Christian for a number of years, how do we really respond to the fact that Jesus is powerful, he's personal and he's forgiven and he can deal with the shame in our lives, the regrets that we have, The greatest illusion of all time is when we fool ourselves into thinking that we have a better plan than God has for us. That's the greatest illusion of all time. That we can find a better love, that we can find a deeper joy, that we can find another life of fulfilment, that we can find salvation. Only in Jesus can we find what we need to deal with what's inside, with the shame that we can so often feel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for an opportunity to be alive today and to be here. To hear your word and your love for us. We thank you that you have displayed your power in our lives and we pray that you would display your power in our lives even more. That we would know how personal you are and how much you love us and that in Jesus we have forgiveness. And if you are here today, and you've never said yes to Jesus, say yes, Lord, today. Allow Jesus to replace your shame with his personal attention, to give you that forgiveness that he wants to give you. And if you are here today, and you've never said yes to Jesus, just say these words in your heart, Lord God, I want you to direct my life, and I start by confessing that I have sin that separates me from you, and I ask for your forgiveness. Enter my life and start controlling my life. And if you are here today and you've prayed that prayer, perhaps recently or perhaps a long time ago, just say, Lord, I don't want to be the same. I don't want to be influenced or driven by my shame. Help me to see that every day you are powerful, personal and forgiving. 
And may that stir something in me that causes me to respond like that, like that one leper, and praise you, not only with my words, but with my life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And if there is anything in your life that uh, you, know, you just want to talk about something that's uh, touched your life this morning, please come and talk with me afterwards.